Hello, you. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about the 1980 movie, The Changeling. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. We will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. The Changeling is a 1980 Canadian supernatural horror film directed by Peter Medak and starring George C. Scott. Its screenplay was written by William Gray and Diana Maddox. How, uh, how's it going out there? How is your life? What are you thinking about? What are you reading? What are you feeling? What have you seen, uh, by way of movies? What are you going to dress up like for Halloween? Are you going to dress up for Halloween? Are you going to any parties for Halloween? How are things going by way of all things spooky season for you? Let us know. We're on Twitter. Uh, I'm on TikTok. We're on Blue Sky. We're on Threads. We're on Instagram. These are the places where we put our stuff in hopes that you will see it and we can connect. <laughs> so find us in these places, if you will. And listen, the world is uh, scary in many, many ways. It is uh, heartbreaking in many, many ways. It is, you know, things are bad in many, many ways. And I just want to let you know that you, my friend, are good. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for talking about these movies with us. Thanks for unpacking feelings with us. Uh, in the face of especially scary times, being able to sit with your feelings for a bit and, uh, you know, interrogate them and feel them and think about them. I think that that's maybe a good thing. So we appreciate you joining us here to do just that. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Uh, you help make the show possible. Without you, we don't have a show because we have a staff to pay. And we are able to do that because you give us a couple dollars a month. And we appreciate you. And in exchange for that uh, support, you get bonus episodes. This whole year, we've we've dived into all things Hannibal and all things uh, Carrie Bradshaw <laughs> over in bonus land. Thank you for bearing with us through uh, this investigation, through this journey. That's what we are focusing on in our bonus materials uh, right now. Who knows what will be next? And this specific episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible by the rarest of ads on our show. Uh, indulge in the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's extraordinary jigsaw puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail. Ravensburger's puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preference or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. Start small! and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. 40,000 pieces, that's a lot of pieces. I have the ADHD. I have to start small. <laughs> but I appreciate that that is a possibility. Last week, I said this at the end of the episode. This week, I want to say at the beginning, so we make sure everyone hears it. Miranda Zickler, editor of You Are Good, is now editor and producer of you are good. We are stoked about this. We love Miranda so much. She is the very best. We adore her. Miranda has been editing the show for over the past year. Carolyn, who has been producing the show, is working on new shows in addition to this family of shows. And she's a musician. Last night, she supported Ed Helms here in Los Angeles, California at a, at a show of his. So she's playing music. She's making the existing shows. She's making new shows. And uh, we'll have more information about that sometime soon. But she's doing stuff. And so now Miranda is producing this show. So welcome aboard, Miranda. We fucking love you. All right. That's enough from me for now. Let's go to Seattle as imagined by Canadians and drop in on a music class taught by a cantankerous George C. Scott. And let's talk about the change thing. Hello, 
sir. Marshall, have you seen? No, you say it first. Sorry, I'm so hyped. Uh, hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Hi. I'm curious. Yes. Have you seen any good microfiche films lately? <laughs> I've seen so many because it is October. So I, I went to see Candyman at the Hollywood Theater the other night. And then also today I watched The Changeling. Can you do me a favor and mm. explain your childhood relationship, if you had one at all, with microfiche? I don't think I ever got to use microfiche. Oh. I know we had index card catalogs at my elementary school library, and I learned how to use those. But I don't ever remember microfiche being available. Ooh la la! We would, I would, I think I've said this in the show before. I but I when my mom was going to um, get her associate's degree. Mm-hmm. She would bring me to the library and showed me what microfiche was. And the very first thing I looked up. So microfiche for, for people who don't know, for people of a particular age, is basically they used to, for archival purposes, photograph the entire newspaper and then store it on a little roll of film that you would put into what's essentially this like self-contained projector that has a screen and it is basically a viewing mechanism for the film. So you could look at mm. old newspapers. And it was like this big console and you see people yeah. in old movies, especially like 80s and 90s horror movies doing this all the time. And they're like scrolling through it with like a handle. And then they're like, there, stop. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it always happens so fast compared to yes. uh, your your actual journey with microfiche, which is like if you're looking for one thing, buckle up for seven hours. And I, when my mom showed it to me, the very first thing I looked up was the Titanic Aww. so that I could read about the misery and uh, everything that was suffered upon the people who went down with the Titanic. And then from that point on, just use microfiche in order to understand the horrors of the world. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, what well, you don't have to bother a parent to rent you an R-rated movie if you simply read the news. <laughs> we, Alex, you and I were in a meeting the other day and I referenced the 1981 Hyatt walkway collapse and I could see like... The glee. <laughs> I, yeah, I could see you having a, a a significant response to that. Like, tell me about that one. I feel like our interest in disasters kind of connects to this movie, honestly. Was that in Kansas City? Where was that? It was in Kansas City. Kansas City, Missouri. Yes. Very important. Very important to point out. I think it was an, an opening, a very state-of-the-art sort of uh, Hyatt interior had a walkway that was not structurally sound, and there were a lot of people on it, and there were a lot of people under it, and it was essentially just these large large concrete slabs that dropped straight down and crushed a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. The headline for an NPR piece about this says one of the deadliest U.S. accidental structural collapses happened 40 years ago today. I think it killed 114 people. Yeah. And then you're like, how could this have happened? And the answer is always the same. And stories like this, which is, well, they built it real crappy. <laughs> and they built it basically in the mood of like, we better never push this past its capacities or, you know, never have a fire. I hope nothing, nothing better ever happen in this building. And it's like, you know what buildings are famous for when you think about it is like things happening in them. <laughs> This is a hell of a start. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about, we watched The Changeling. We did at some point, yeah. Which is, uh, I can't wait, I truly can't wait to talk about this movie with you for many reasons. One, we've seen movies recently that just pull entire scenes from this, and I can't wait to talk about that. Two, George C. Scott, hell of a George C. Scott in this movie. It's great. This movie has as much George C. Scott as Don't Worry Darling has Florence Pugh. And three, I can't wait for you to explain some of the plot of this movie because (laughs) I'm still unclear why the main thing that happens happened. Oh, okay. Maybe you should try and tell me the plot this time. We can have like a bizarro, ooh, bad buy. I can, I can. I'm going to need some help with understanding why the switcheroo happened. Yeah, and then we get to that point, I'll, I'll tell you. But yeah. I, I'll, let me just start by saying the context for this movie is that in 2004, I watched Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments, and it was really a pivotal experience. <laughs> 
Do you remember this, Alex? I sure do. This and and we've talked about this before, but for many pre YouTube in particular, yes, YouTube didn't exist that year, you guys. Yeah, this is just how you were able to cram horror. Yes, Bravo's 100 scariest movie moments. If you weren't there, picture a 15 year old Sarah Marshall who has never watched a horror movie because she's too scared, watching this great, incisive, intellectual, also very funny kind of jazzy vh1 imitation countdown <laughs> show on bravo i still have yet to watch all the movies featured in it that it made me want to see but it like gave me a roadmap for where to start with horror and one of the movies they featured was the changeling and so i finally watched that one when i was in grad school and this was like right before the conjuring came out and so i think things are different now but at the time i remember really reflecting on how you don't see a lot of modern haunted house movies mm. or like you didn't in 2011. Yes. And I think The Conjuring turned that around by making so much money. But this is a movie about George C. Scott playing a man who is widowed in the opening minutes of the movie in like a horrible one of those snow truck accidents like we saw in Mithrigan. Yes, you're right. Yeah. James loves this movie. Yes, James does. James is a ghosty guy. And Lee also, I would bet, loves yes, this yes, movie. Yes, 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 yes. The Others is an amazing movie that also has a scene, the same scene as, as in Insidious, the seance scene that you can see is like lovingly based on this movie. Lovingly. Absolutely. Yeah. And so George C. Scott, his hot wife and daughter are killed in a, in a freak accident. How much did you relate to the aesthetics of this family? <laughs> well, my mom wasn't like a hot Jane Seymour dupe when I was like, growing up. My mom was a hot somebody else. <laughs> my mom wasn't either, but just seeing like a dad this visibly old. Yes. In the setup with his like little girl being like, come play with me. And there's no possible way he's going to go get involved in a snowball fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I was like, I love that I can I know these people. I, I know this setup. I know. I love to see an unexplained old an unapologized for a really old dad <laughs> yeah. in film. And it's, there's also we've talked about this before, but like the whole thing with age, like my dad was 44 Mm -hmm. when I was born and that's like normal today yes absolutely. you know there are like so many kind of like tan comic book dads who like have babies and snugglies who are like yeah I'm 44 I wear converse and I see live music and my dad being of uh British extraction was like <laughs> I'm 44 <laughs> It's over. Time to mow the lawn occasionally <laughs> and just prepare for the grave. <laughs> yeah, definitely. My dad was 53. Yeah, that's really quite over 50 is really something. George C. Scott is old as fuck and he is carrying it around in this, but he's also like a little sexy in a weird way. <laughs> well, and I think George C. Scott is in his 50s in this movie but like like both of our dads i presume he's been smoking since he was totally. a baby he's 70s 50 which is yes which is 70 <laughs> and 70s 30s is 50s and uh yeah jersey scott also maybe most famously won an oscar for Patton. he was Patton and Patton, uh and he did not want it for whatever reason <laughs> i think kind of just a, a massive power move that's good. That's George C. Scott. That's the vibe. Look him up. So George C. Scott loses his wife and daughter in a freak snow truck accident. They're having a snowball fight. A, a snowplow swerves to avoid an oncoming car and, you know, runs into his wife and daughter. And so can you imagine every dad who opts out of playing with the wife and daughter watching this movie and being like, this is why I don't engage in fun. <laughs> And I never will. Playing is a death trap. <laughs> it's true. I'm going to go back upstairs. <laughs> and so George C. Scott, being a real trendsetter, inspires, I think, the future actions of Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle, George Clooney in ER, and Hello Larry himself. And in his time of bereavement, moves to the Pacific Northwest. It's shocking. Every time you were reminded that this is a Seattle feature. Yeah, it's not really. I think it was shot no. in Vancouver. And it is. And there's something about this movie that is like, because especially in the 90s, like everything was shot in Vancouver and often it was sort of vaguely set in Seattle or New York or whatever. And you could kind of it, it didn't look that bad. But this movie is like culturally 
its bones are Canadian bones. Yes, I agree entirely. I think it's that so many people in it are British. Like maybe Canadians don't realize that in Seattle there aren't so many Scottish people wandering around for a start. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think think you're right. But yeah, so he moves to Seattle. He goes to what I assume is a nonprofit called the Bereaved Daddies Housing League. (laughs) And they're like, oh, yes, we have many historical mansions available. What about this one? And he's like, sure. And they're like, it needs some repairs. And you're like, no, it doesn't. It looks great. He's doing fucking nothing to the place. The mechanics of the situation where his friend gets him a job teaching composition at a university. Yeah. He teaches one class and then he gets into his ghost and he's done with that. And it's like, can we at least see papers being due? Yeah. (laughs) This feels very foreign, particularly knowing what everyone's dealing with from a housing perspective now. There is a historical society that apparently also helps hook people up with living in historical properties that are no longer lived in. Yes. Which, again, I mean, isn't there something in the UK, right, where you can like lease crumbling houses from the National Trust as long as you put a ton of money into restoring them and that's like a thing that exists but this is seattle (laughs) like the oldest houses are from probably like what the 1880s yeah and they're like no one wants to live in this house it's a man to be fair it's like a mansion i guess no one wants to live in a mansion no one wants to live in this mansion that no one has lived in for 11 years that's what we know not a single pentagram drawn on it by teens no there's one doorway that has several boards nailing it shut that's really the and and he works on that and then he's like fixed my house because <laughs> the ghost told me to <laughs> <laughs> and so he's a composer he has come to teach music at the university for one class and then he's done and so he also uh he has worked with a historical society realtor i guess um named claire who's played by george c scott's real life wife trish van devere oh i had no idea yeah they were married for 27 years wow and they run into each other when he's he's performing at the symphony this is also such a wonderful awkward introduction they like run into each other she's like oh hello i'd like you to meet my mother it's like you want to say a middle thing in there (laughs) and so he starts to notice like weird clues inside his house he, he he like wakes up at six or seven in the morning and there's like a banging throughout the house and so the caretaker mr tuttle is like oh it's it's something in the pipes you can always blame pipes mm-hmm. he's like okay and then he like gets inspired to write this piano piece and he records it and he loves it he's like wow this is really good and then he works out that there's When you go outside, and I think this is so spooky, I love this. When you go outside and count the windows of the house, they don't match up with the number of rooms that you can access when you're inside. Mm -hmm. And so he throws a rock through one of the windows of the mystery room and then goes up and finds it. And it's got, it's clearly like a dusty, abandoned child's bedroom. Love it. (laughs) Love it. And he finds a music box that when you open it plays the piece that he just wrote. (sighs) Yes, that's great. That's so good. Why is that so good? I don't know. It's like, I like that it suggests that everything you think you're coming up with isn't yours. And there's a violation there, Hmm. which is really great. Like that he's like, I wrote this thing because I'm a great composer. Or like he he kind of just, I can't remember if it's like that he wrote it or he's like playing it and improvising, whatever. It comes Mm -hmm. up that it's like in him. And to think about that as a, like a violation of your presumed autonomy Mm. is top notch. It's greatly unsettling. And also... I think also it just speaks to the reality of the situation in which like so many of the things you think you're doing autonomously are like reflexive or the results of like 20 to 30 to 40 years of forward momentum in one way or another. And like that's kind of a beautiful metaphor that hauntings can represent. So, yeah, we get we we realize that the house is either speaking to him or trying to communicate through him or trying to use the language that he knows in order to to connect with him. So we've got the pounding, we've got the music box, it's time to call a medium, which luckily the university has a psychical research department or whatever. 
And I love this scene so much. To me, this is the centerpiece of the movie and the scariest part of it. And Alex, I would love for you to describe it. So a medium comes who we later, who again, like this plays out almost identically in the movie Insidious. That, mm-hmm. And it's it's performed in that movie by Lynn Shay and her helpers, although her helpers in that movie feel much more like they're from the poltergeist than what mm-hmm. we see in this movie, although there's a very similar series of interactions. So a medium comes, she has a helper, she's communicating with the house. The house is communicating back and she is kind of not looking when she's being communicated with and she's asking the house questions and then starts to to zero in not just on the house because she's hearing a voice. We later find out she's talking with the child and as she's receiving the information, she's kind of like her eyes are not quite rolled back in her head, but she's not staring at a fixed point. She's just kind of like looking up and out mm-hmm. and she's writing with a pencil on a sheet of paper and she's only writing on it for like a second before going to the next sheet and then writing and then going to the next sheet for some reason that's the process it's very wasteful well she's just like she's just like scribbling and it it, there's something to me that feels so like very classic seance and spiritualist core and also very haunting about just like because it feels you know what it feels like it feels like she's using her hand as like What's the thing that measures earthquakes? The seismograph? Yeah, that's exactly right. Like she's moving, she's kind of moving her hand like that and the house will, or whatever whatever is communicating with her, will guide it at sort of like the right moments mm-hmm. and she'll, she'll write down. And then some words come out of this over time. And this is recorded and later sort of listened to. And in that we'll, we'll hear the actual voice of the child yeah. who's talking. We had like just invented home recording pretty much at the time. I mean, I guess had been around for a while but we were still able to be like what imagine if you had a tape player going you could record that ghost and some of the words that come through are like father son metal metal is really important and everyone is like shocked by it happening but also there's a level of everyone also being casual about it in a way that is kind of surprising but yeah, they receive this information from the house via the scribble medium system. Yeah, we have a little boy ghost named Joseph, and we Joseph. also like have the camera move down the stairs and across the room during the seance scene. We take ghost POV occasionally in this movie. It's also interesting that this movie came out the same year as The Shining, and you can see some really some tonal similarities. Oh, definitely. And before this... In that scene where George C. Scott is introduced to the mother at a party, (laughs) at that party, Senator Joseph Carmichael Mm-hmm. is speaking to everybody and he's a and he's a big philanthropist and he's a Republican senator and he's a supporter. He's a Democrat senator. Oh no. Is he I thought that they said Republican many times. Did I make that up? No, they mentioned that his uh Claire's mom doesn't like him because she's a lifelong Republican. Oh, thank so you. she's in the right in this movie. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so he's sorry, he's a he's a Democrat senator, although outside of just mentioning that explicitly the politics of it don't come up, he's just his regular old corrupto, as we'll find out. Later. Yeah. He's just a a, a a grafty Irish guy. I can't imagine who he's based on, you know. He, he's the sort of guy who if he gets you you get in his way, he'll have you committed. And he'll let you know about it. So, but but we don't know this yet. He's a nice guy at this point. He's Diamond Joe Quimby. He's a he's a nice guy, and there's enough suggested about him that you know to keep an eye on him. Right. It's kind of it's like the law of um, I forget the term, but like the the law of plot economy or something, character economy. Is this a Roger Ebertism? Yeah, where you're just like you're introduced to someone, but you're you're not given a reason about why you're introduced to them. Right. And there's enough of a of a zoom on them where you're like, okay, I'll put a pin in that. <laughs> I'm gonna give spoilers for Urban Legends Final Cut. I think okay. it's probably been long enough that like Hart Bachner, who plays Ellis in Die Hard, is in that movie. And he's like prominently credited and he plays a professor, but he's in it for like two scenes and then he disappears for like an hour. And you're just like, I think Hart Bachner did it because why else would he be in this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they start to get better about red herring those a little bit. Like Sydney's dad is that in Scream. Yeah. And you're like, clearly this guy did it. And then. I don't know, spoiler alert for Scream. It wasn't Sydney's dad. I mean, you watch a Wes Craven movie, you got no complaints. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we have this seance. Why why does the seance speak to you? Um, why do you think that it works? I guess I really love it. And I think it probably it speaks to my experience of writing where like when things are going really well, you really do feel like you're being possessed by a ghost. Yeah. But like in a nice way. <laughs> right. I think in and with writing in particular, I was just talking with Carolyn about this, like mm-hmm. with writing in particular, you just put everything into your body. Right. You receive everything possible and you become a different thing that is capable of writing the thing. Yes. And then when you become that thing, it's time to write the thing. And it, it is this. It's yeah. you're receiving. You're receiving, you're receiving. And then finally you're able to put out enough output to have some significant realization about it. Yeah. And then you kind of like fall out of it exhausted like Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost <laughs> after Patrick Swayze leaves her body. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, that whole movie was just dreamed up as an excuse to get Whoopi Goldberg and to be more to make out. Um, a lot of entry and exiting, entering <laughs> and exiting. <laughs> but, it, but it is, it's it, right. That is what it, that what it feels like to me. And that's sort of, I think, you know, we're searching for paranormal experience and we often try and access it, I think, by using the capacities that human beings have. And one of them is a trance state. And that's kind of a miraculous capacity that we do have. And I think it's very... I don't know. That's it's very potentially very useful to us. And so if we have to use it in the ghost hunting arena to understand its importance, then that's fine. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And then the scenes that this inspired both in Insidious and in the others are also really great. There's just something very powerful about especially looking at this and the others. You see different aspects of the same interaction um, in the movies kind of support each other and so and also the kind of you know seeing the place this movie has in i think it's kind of like a horror fans horror movie in a great way yeah i don't know how this was received although any time and you see this now on tiktok with people who do like kind of emulations of those top horror scare list on tiktok or whatever and this still comes up this is like Hmm. still a you know scariest movie scariest scenes whatever its impact is still noted and to the point of it coming up in like modern horror like we've we've already seen a number seen and mentioned a number of homages to it one of the things that i texted you while watching it is what is especially surprising and i think you're right with like the kind of the the tonal and presentational similarities between this and and The Shining. But what's shocking is this came out in 1980, which means it was produced in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And it feels very much like, I mean, the 1970s is like charitable for how modern it feels Mm -hmm. compared to the fact that Poltergeist comes out two years later and it feels like there's 30 years in between these movies. Mm-hmm. And there's only two, it just in not how it's made, but like how it looks and how it feels. Like mm-hmm. Poltergeist feels aesthetically way ahead of its time. And this feels very much like of its time. And I think yeah. that that's part of what contributes to it feeling scary in the ways that it feels scary. It feels like it's of a different fabric. Yeah. I mean, I think we also don't have enough horror movies about middle-aged people. <laughs> yeah. Which this is. Totally. Like horror movies didn't really used to be about teenagers as much right. as, as they are kind of by definition today. Yeah. I mean, if you think, again, like The Shining is about a 40 year old man losing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And then I this movie, the way the plot progresses is really interesting to me as well, because so much of it, I think, works so well. And then I think towards the end, things go somewhat off the rails. That's such a long haunted house scene. <laughs> Yes. I think Joseph works best when his powers are are somewhat, you know, contained. Yeah, when they're when they're subtly communicating. Yeah. And cuz then he really he really starts to to get bold and so we also George C Scott basically investigates. We've had like a false lead earlier with the microfiche where they thought they had another ghost in the house before they found out about Joseph. He goes out and researches the Carmichaels and he works out very quickly, very quickly, um, his theory of what happened. And so what's your understanding of this? OK. OK. What I know for sure mm-hmm. is that the senator's father mm-hmm. killed his natural born. I mean, I'm not using this as my words. He, this is George C. Scott's words. Killed his natural born son. Mm-hmm. He drowned him in a bathtub. The son is disabled. He, mm-hmm. he requires a wheelchair to to move. A spooky wheelchair, yes. Of such a spooky wheelchair. This and Red Dragon are two great spooky wheelchair movies. They sure are. His father kills him. 
takes in and you could please you'll fill in the specifics i i'm I'm sure but takes in an orphan somehow maybe if even Mm -hmm. dumps the body of his natural born son in a well it takes in an orphan sends the orphan out to switzerland the orphan comes back at age 18 so no one knows that he's been switched out Mm -hmm. and the person who's been switched out is the senator yeah the boy who was tossed in a well was very stupidly on the father's part tossed with his saint christopher medal thankfully Mm. because that gives us something to uh, look for and what i don't understand is somehow the senator's father-in-law no Mm -hmm. maybe no the senator's father's father-in-law has Mm -hmm. something to do with the inheritance i think maybe the senator's father who killed the natural born son Mm -hmm. was married to someone who was affluent Mm -hmm. and her father didn't like him and the only way that he could get money was because the money didn't pass to the father it passed to the son Mm -hmm. so he killed that son and then the money ended up going to the senator and somehow the father was able to get some of his hands on that money or his hands on some of that money well yeah and so the the motive the curiosity scott decides he had for killing his child is that he was sickly and if he didn't reach the age of 18 then none of the money would go to his father's household at all and he would be skipped over so he has to keep the son alive to get access to the money that the son will inherit and so he kills his son to ensure that he gets the money that he wouldn't get if his son died, which when you put it that way, you're like, huh? And then he said he finds just any healthy boy. Right. <laughs> so that OK, so that is why I was like, I appreciate it. I appreciate the faith they had in the audience <laughs> because there are one or two layers too many. I feel like for me to have confidently said what I just said. <laughs> but. You know, they they did it. And George C. Scott finds it out in 10 minutes, as you said. And then, and this is, I guess, kind of horror mystery, because this is the kind of motive that is like so familiar from like the mystery genre. And, you know, and I'm saying this because this is what I was exposed to through my mom and watching Masterpiece Mystery for so many years. Like the British mystery is like anytime anything scary is happening today, it's because of how Davina wrote her will in 1937. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And what did the vicar see? Right, 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 right. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I mean, I do like, I like how much haunting is created by it being sort of a metaphorical comeuppance for human fuckery. I love that. Right. And I feel like this is one of the ways that this pairs interestingly with Poltergeist and The Shining is our like, and I guess the Amityville horror as well is like our carter into reagan haunted house movies Mm -hmm. where like they are you know we have the graves that we didn't move the headstones for in poltergeist we have the overlook being built on an indigenous burial ground and the shining we have the body of the murdered son which is in a well that like a house has been built on top of and is giving the girl who lives there nightmares we find out and they basically george c scott is like can I saw through your daughter's bedroom floor? And they're like, we'll think about it. And then she has another nightmare and they're like, okay, come do it. That also, didn't that also feel like insidious in a way where it's like they do the seance and that's not enough for them. Like the the very successful seance they had is not enough. And they were like, we need some time to think about it. And then like three minutes yeah. goes by and they're like, we've had enough time. to think Yes. About it. Yeah. <laughs> like, because they show up to the house, to her house when she's like, I received your message. So she, they gave her some information and the changeling and she's like i know that you want to like dig up my house and i was like that's really it's really nice of her to accept them coming even though she knows that that's what's going on she's like and also this is a rental so (laughs) specifically she she was like i am letting you come because the night that you said something happened my daughter had these nightmares so cool of her to let them in yeah well it's the night of the seance so joseph is like you know He's rattling around down there. (laughs) With his little bone hand. (laughs) And so there is like a a beautiful shot. And I think this movie has a lot of beautiful camera work and great steady cam stuff. And there's a scene where like the camera kind of in ghost POV like rushes up the stairs Mm. in a really, really wonderful, creepy way. And we have the camera. It feels like it's mounted on 
what's supposed to be the ceiling and it's looking down at the room and then the space below the room where George C. Scott is shoveling dirt out of a well. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know, the images in this movie are very strong. It feels like it's it's best when it's kind of simple. Yeah, by the way, mm. the setup for this movie is him. And I understand that like we're we're maybe we're dealing with grief as metaphor a little bit here. Mm-hmm. But plot-wise, his dead family <laughs> does not factor into this movie. He doesn't want to talk about it. And, you know, maybe there's maybe it's like because of his grief, he's like extra open to like hearing this or because that is the rationale this movie has. Yeah. They're like, you can see the ghost because of your grief, which I think is great. I think that that's right on. But they but there's not and like even when he goes to the microfiche and finds out that a girl had gotten hit by a car, uh, hit by a coal cart mm-hmm. in 1909. Like there's no moment of him like taking just like a quick what like oh that exact same thing happened to my like there's nothing no acknowledgement and i love that i think that that's great that is very him of him absolutely <laughs> this guy he doesn't t- he there's one there is a really beautiful moment i i'm a little wrong on that because there's a beautiful moment still very very early on in the movie where he's wailing like yes. he's asleep and it feels like that scene in hereditary when tony collette is just like in her bed wailing you get that which is great because it's the most vulnerable i've ever seen george c scott be, yeah for sure he also cries in a christmas carol you should watch that Oh, I will. I will. I, I I feel like I should have a, I should cram some George C. Uh, shouldn't we all? George Cram Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I wailed last night. It was great. Really? Yeah. Because yesterday is my dad's birthday. He would have oh. been 80. And I guess, you know, he still is actually. Happy birthday, Tom. Yeah. Everybody go watch some Peter Cook. <laughs> I am I am gonna we we joked about this earlier uh when it was coming up but I am gonna eat some tinned fish really yeah for sure okay I'll, I'm gonna get some tinned fish as well I had some smoked trout recently Ooh. canned smoked trout that was so good oh my god that sounds really good can I also say I think that I realize I'm sure there's some kind of technical reason for this but I don't care I think that the phrase tinned fish exists because Americans feel that it's too working class to eat canned fish and so tinned (laughs) sounds British to us and it feels better and it's taking the kibosh off of canned fish. I think that's really funny and that makes a lot of sense. I I think the reason it even exists in my household is because my grandparents are Scottish. (laughs) So I think that that's what they call it. Well, that's, and you came by that honestly. (laughs) But but that's a very, that sounds totally right on. (laughs) Yeah. My dad just called them um, Kippered Snacks. Kipper Snacks. Yeah. 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 That's a big one in Maine. Kippered Snacks. Yeah. Do you know the story that well, I'm sure I've told you this before? My mom went into labor. My dad packed up a bunch of kippered snacks. <laughs> oh, that's fucking great. But it worked out to be a very short labor. That's f- absolutely great. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And there's so many things where I know that they were their manifestations of how they were were very different. But sometimes it feels like the... Venn diagram is just one circle between your father and my father. I know. <laughs> is this like, I don't, maybe like your grandparents did this, but like my dad, I think, especially as a younger man, was into the combination of like a, a big sweater and then shorts, short little shorts, <laughs> and then boots, gum boots. I'm sad to admit that that's like not dissimilar from my current style, which is like just like a big baggy top and then shorts and then clunky ass shoes. Maybe that should be my Halloween costume. I was thinking of going as a shallot, but I think this will be a lot easier. <laughs> Might have to adopt. That's a good look. Yeah, it is a great look. Everyone looks great in it. Oh my god. <laughs> All right, where are we in the changeling? So the changeling. So he d- he digs up the boy from the well. He finds this a uh, skeleton down there and a St. Christopher medal, which kind of like lifts out of the dirt by itself. And you're like, huh. And like Joseph's powers at this point, you're like, what can Joseph, <laughs> what limits Joseph really? Because we've also seen 
him basically like give George C. Scott a vision of his death scene. So he has like confirmed what happened. But also George C. throws his dead daughter's rubber ball into the river one night in kind of a gesture of, you know, progressing through grief. And then he comes home and the ball bounces down the stairs. And that's very creepy. But also, how the fuck did Joseph get there and back is what I want to know. Can Joseph get around town? Does he have to take the bus? Can he drive? Can he, like, jump? If you're not careful about your ghost rules, it becomes a god a little bit, and you got to be careful. Yeah, like, how is he... Because, like, the thing about Joseph that I think works really well is that we have these tracking shots where we watch him moving around the house. He opens doors. He plays a piano key. That all makes sense. Why is he allowed to wander around Seattle? <laughs> this is a great, this is great. Yeah. This is important. That's what's so nice about what we were saying about Freddie the other day, that like Freddie can only be in one place at a time. Yeah, it's, it is. I hadn't thought about it until we talked about Freddie, that again, like if you're, if your ghost has one too many powers, it's not a ghost anymore. It's a deity. Yeah. It's something that you have to worry about on a bigger level. And yeah. I think that, you know, Freddie has a set of rules that's like difficult to track sometimes, but yeah, he does border on, on God arena. Yeah. And so after George C. Scott digs up the body, they, I guess, call the police and the police come and are like, so why did you think there would be a body down here? And he's like, I don't know. No reason. And they're like, that's fine. Just thought I'd cut a random woman's floor open and start digging into a well for fun. And the cops, fine. They're fine with it. Well, they're Canadian. They don't care. (laughs) She's like... They could tell by your face that you knew something. And and he rightfully, actually, in a way that is extremely reasonable for many horror movies, he's like, they wouldn't. Why would they believe me? Like, right. I don't have the proper information. Like, I received this information from listening to a ghost. I can't really tell them that. And that's that's great because that's true. That is the truth. I mean, he certainly like has some information, but not enough to like probably for them to pursue a case against a powerful senator. Yeah. And he's smart enough to be conscious of that. Yeah. And so he decides to confront the senator about his findings and he decides to do so in a way that will make him seem really reasonable. And so he rushes toward the senator in an airfield while shouting at him and waving the medal. And he really makes his point, which is to say that he's dragged away. (laughs) That was for someone who knew that the cops weren't going to believe him, I feel like as a move, that wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Jurek C. Scott is not known for his temperance. Nope. No. Not he at put all. on a nice blazer before he did it. So that's really nice. And in response, the senator is like, call this specific cop that I know. Yeah. Which I think is a great move. And the cop shows up to his house and for one minute, you think that there's going to be some some consequences for George C's meddling. Metal metal. For his metal meddling. And George C has the St. Christopher, which proves who the boy is. Again, that I do feel like that was a thing that he could probably bring to the attention. But if he thinks that the cops are corrupt, like right. why why bring it up? You might just be giving them something that they're gonna destroy. He's a cab already, which is great. But he um a cop comes and he's like, It seems like you might need some help from all of your grief. You've gone through a lot. We could see to it that you get that help. Like he's suggesting that he can have George C involuntarily committed. Yeah. George C. leaves. Claire comes and bursts in at the moment that this all is happening to explain that she's been fired from her job at the Historical Society. At the Sad Daddy Housing Commission. At the Sad Daddy Housing Commission. She's been fired. There's a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Because there's that other lady at the Historical Society who we've seen be sneaky. So it's (laughs) like, is there a cover up? Do people know? Yes, she's and she's been that that lady's on speaking terms with the senator and feeds information like that's how the senator knows that they're closing in because that lady knows that they've been doing research. And the cop leaves and George C. has a vision by looking into a mirror and the vision is delivered to him by Joseph. And the vision is that Joseph has murdered the cop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or maybe the cop just randomly died. But George C. sees the cop dead in his car. No, Joseph killed a cop somehow. And he like flipped a car. Like we don't we're not told the mechanics of this. But like Joseph caused a car accident. I mean, maybe he like got it. Maybe he got in the car and rode away and then just like okay maybe it makes sense but like 
Joseph just has too much power at this point is what I really think. Yeah, his ac- the accident is not it's not like he hit a tree or like he swerved or whatever. The car is exactly upside down in the middle of the road. Yeah, somehow. So figure that out. Yeah. And then basically George C. Scott's whole house just like catches. Well, he has a confrontation with the senator. He's like, here's what happened. And the senator's like, no, it didn't. My father was a great man. Leave me alone. And then George C. Scott's whole house just like kind of explodes and burns down after Claire gets chased by a wheelchair, which is a really dumb scene. But Trish Vandeveer is like acting her head off um, and really selling it. And Joseph just like destroys the house and our main characters Claire and George C. Scott flee and the senator kind of wanders into it and house and senator are consumed and then I guess Joseph feels better I guess he's like that was what I needed thank you bye (laughs) we've also had a scene where George C. Scott feels like he's done everything he can to get closure but he's still getting haunted and he's like what do you want from me stop this he like yells at his ghost which I guess really he's like you son of a bitch well, and the last scene, I find the last scene extremely confusing. And I think maybe it like worked for like a creepy, you leave with a creepy feeling way. But like mm-hmm. the camera, we zoom, not zoom, but we sort of like are, are heading towards the house. Our point of view is heading towards the house, which is now rubble. Mm-hmm. And we see the music box, which is has been burned. And it opens up and starts playing the music. Yeah. And we see the wheelchair, which is obviously a signifier of Joseph. And it suggests that like, he's still he's still at it right and i feel like it's just the law for horror that you have to like hint that there's still something scary going on but i love it when horror movies are able to be like and that's really the end okay bye leave me alone agreed so we have this like i don't know this movie feels like a fairly tight i think like pretty beautiful classic ghost story kind of fable and then it feels like it doesn't really know how to end and it has to escalate into sort of like movie nonsense yeah I agree. And to your point, uh, or things you were saying earlier, like this movie tonally throughout is like all of these suggestions and like creepy coincidences and sort of the, you know, the tension of research and will this happen? Will it not happen? Whatever. And then when it has to deliver Haunted House, it's real big. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of cool, actually. Like, I don't have I don't have complaints about how it plays out. Well, I have, I have I think I have complaints about like the pacing and stuff, but like stuff like the all of the stairs like burning and completely falling out. Like they really they really went for it. And then with the unresolved ending, like the music box is still going. I think that when making the movie, they had the first 90 percent solidly in their mind and did not necessarily know what to do with the last 10 percent and now that joseph has burned his own house down like where is he gonna hang out yeah do they do ghosts in this case like there must be a tremendous amount written on the ghost's relationship with geography Mm. but like probably not enough probably does it live in a fixed point on the earth and the house just happens to be there is it like in the bones of the house? Like, what does it, where does it live? Great question. I mean, I feel like, go, like to me, the kind of traditional situation with ghosts is that like they belong to a place, right? And usually it's a structure and sometimes it's like a civil war battlefield or something. Right. But that like they can't just go wherever they want. They're kind of like stuck somewhere. And like my own personal kind of feeling about it is that like it makes sense for houses to be where the ghost is attached to because like i don't feel that attached to like the piece of land my parents house is on right right right, right. of course i'm attached to the house because that was where i grew up the way that i've heard, heard i'm like first of all i'm gonna say this and i'm gonna say the way that i've heard it and have no source for it whatsoever but it's a thing that i've heard several times is an explanation i've heard for ghosts from uh, and actually, I can think of one of the sources, a person who we had do like a spiritual cleaning of my house after I inherited it from my father. And it mm-hmm. was it felt like it had things going on is <laughs> like what ghosts ultimately can be mm-hmm. is essentially like, you know, if you take like a live photo on your iPhone mm-hmm. and it like looks like nothing is happening, but then you press it and it's there's some recording of the movement, like a half a second or a second of movement, mm-hmm. is that like a ghost can be 
some equivalent of that, like a snapshot of some psychic weirdness that happened in a specific point in time in a place Mm -hmm. that the place for whatever reason it will not move on from. Yeah. And I like that a lot. I do too. That the, the weight and gravity of a particular thing was so impactful that it still occupies the place. And that makes some sense too, where it's like over a long enough period of time, the house is going to be gone to the, or it's going to get burned down by, by Joseph. <laughs> and I guess we're left to ask, like, does Joseph go with the house or does it, st- is it still just kind of like floating over that, that place? And so every time you walk, you know, we've all had a situation where we've been walking and it feels like something has gone through us or like we've walked through something and maybe that's the ghost in its house is gone and it doesn't know what to do anymore. Yeah, I know. That's really sad. And he burned all his old toys. Yeah. Like what's going to happen with Lake Mungo, gal? Yeah, that's the thing. You don't want a ghost to be lonely. <sighs> I like. OK, so I do like that the conceit of this movie is that he is especially attuned you know it we've covered so much we covered in this month's bonus we've covered red dragon which is essentially about will graham's special empathic powers and similarly we have george c scott who like if he was just a normal man there's no way he would understand what was happening but thankfully he's a man afflicted by grief and that (laughs) gives him the special power to know that some shit is going down around him yeah that was great i also the theoretic relationship between like young kids and ghosts is interesting to me I think that's based partly on the fact that, like, it's normal for little kids to just say creepy, inexplicable stuff all the time. Yes. Like, the, you know, when you're talking to, like, a little kid and they're describing something you were there for and you're like, well, when you put it like that, it sounds incredibly bizarre and kind of scary. I do. I do. <laughs> I love it. Well, and I think, like, a huge, I think a huge reason in theory why the child is especially attuned to sensing the ghost is, like, once you learn a way to do something you unlearn every other way to do it Hmm. so like once you learn whatever the way to drive to the store Mm -hmm. there are 20 ways to drive to the store and Mm -hmm. if you only drive the way you learn to drive to the store you're not seeing 19 other realities yeah and then it's normalized for adults to be very bossy about their way being the correct way and making everyone take halsey (laughs) and then kids still see the spectrum Mm-hmm. They see all of the ways they haven't been taught. They haven't been <laughs> beaten proverbially and sometimes uh, unfortunately physically into only seeing reality through one lens. Yeah. You know, that's it's, like, it's also the supposed, you know, like sacred way of seeing. It's like the, mm. the fact that you're open to all of the sort of spiritual possibility. Like David Lynch. Right. Well, it, it makes sense that grief puts George C. Scott back in that place because, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, he had these dear things taken from him, but it stripped him of all presumptions about what the way is, you know, like yeah. he was doing the way and then it got taken from him and now he has nothing and he has to he's sort of back to zero. Yeah. And his beautiful home. Yeah. And it feels like like the horror movies work so well at pointing out things they maybe don't know they're pointing out because like nobody who wrote this movie had to realize that that was what they were saying about masculinity but they're still saying that right right absolutely if this was george c scott six months ago there's no way he's hearing or seeing that ghost but he's able to see it in this case you know that's and that's what insidious ended up being about right is that it's like this this guy had to be reminded that he could see these things right yeah, men being forced to open up, which actually there's a chapter in Men, Women, and Chainsaws about. Oh, is there? Yeah. I think it's called Opening Up. <laughs> I haven't read that in a hundred years, and I need to reread that. Yeah, you should. For people who don't know, Men, Women, and Chainsaws is by Carol Clover. It's one of the first pieces of academic writing published on mainstream horror movies, specifically slashers. Mm. And it's very good. It's very good. And it coined the term Final Girl. That's Carol. When when we were talking about what movie to cover that was going to be mm-hmm. just you and I, um, why is this one that came to you outside of the, the, the 100 scariest moments? Right. Well, the three things I offered were this, The Vanishing, and what was the third thing? Near Dark. Oh, yeah. Which is like, a you know, more fun. But <laughs> It sure is. <laughs> but yeah, that The Changeling and The Vanishing are both kind of movies about grief and about Mm -hmm. what grief does to us and that obviously is one of the scariest things 
for us to contemplate through cinema because it is something that <laughs> has happened and will continue to happen to all of us. I can't wait till we cover The Vanishing at some point. Yeah. That movie. That movie is fucked up. That's the scariest movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Because it, it takes place in the real world and it has absolutely no mercy. Yeah. If you haven't seen The Vanishing, I highly, 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 highly recommend doing that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, me too. And like, yeah, The Vanishing and The Changeling are both movies that I think like they feel like such a nice addition to the Halloween season of like hocus pocus, pumpkin carving, plastic skeletons, like all the all the fun stuff. I love the fun Halloween stuff. And I also like at least one night of the year to watch something that is like sad and somber and probably Canadian and you know that is about kind of like where fear and sadness intersect and I love a ghost love a sad ghost I love I love a sad non-violent ghost most of all so Lake Mungo goes in this this list yeah that's just I love I love Lake Mungo so much. I'm so glad that you introduced it to me it has been it's always it's always with me yeah <laughs> I also like this idea that's addressed in this movie is the, the, the changeling concept is really incredibly fun. I've read two books called The Changeling in my life. They're both terrifying in their ways of just being like, we thought it was this one thing, but at some point it turned and now it's this other thing. It's a concept that for a long time in this country, we, we fetishized that you could yeah. fully and fundamentally become a different thing and not have undoing being haunted by the fact that you still are the other thing. So I think I think also just like conceptually, this is doing a lot, particularly for people who are like, there's something off about this person. Mm -hmm. I can't quite tell what it is. Maybe the person who they're saying that they are was drowned in a bathtub by their father and replaced by an orphan as a part of an inheritance scheme. Yeah, it's a great motif. Have you seen this movie before today? Yeah, for the same reasons you have, actually, which yeah. is being told via via popular culture lists that it has like the scariest scene or it's the scariest movie tonally or whatever. And I disagree. Yeah. I, I don't feel that way. I There's elements of it that just feel too dated that take me out. or um, mm -hmm. But I think it does a lot of things that have become very tropey, mm -hmm. like straight and very well. Yes. I think it does a lot extremely well. It's very careful, again, with the exception of sort of like how over the over the top, sometimes it feels like the last scenes are, it does vibe well. It does the like, the ball coming down. You don't like zoom in into the ball. It's like gooey. It's just like the ball came back. Yeah. That's crazy. I think it works extremely well. I feel like the theme of our show often when we rewatch movies I haven't seen in 10 or 15 years is like, I'm finally old enough to get it. Mm. You know, I'm finally old enough mm -hmm. to get the grief element. I'm finally old enough to, I finally lost enough people to get what is happening in this. Yeah. In a way where like before you're just like, oh, I, yeah, I, I understand it. And now you're just like, oh, this guy's fucking. Yeah. He's a receiver of the dead because he's close to dead people. Yeah. How do you think Wheezy would haunt you? <laughs> I don't know, just like uh making it so that like every once in a while I suddenly have to spend five thousand dollars I don't have. <laughs> Maybe she'll do that. Her legacy. Yeah. Just every couple of years. So we we were at this performance last night and one of the artists played a song and she was like, This is a she's like, How many of you guys have a dead parent? And I was like, Woo! Like <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is for me uh people like put their hands up and she was talking about how a friend of hers just lost a dog right as she was losing a parent and oh, they God. kind of like they kind of had that they had that in common and uh i loved the dead parent club in a way <laughs> yeah well really any like major death club like there is i don't know like i lost my dad as like well into adulthood he's you know I'm trying to qualify my my grief, but like I did really lose him. He is really dead and I did really love him and still do. And that you can't really qualify that. And like there is some kind of like shared something of like I've done the thing that everyone's scared of. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. And all these things that like you don't understand how you're going to survive and you're like, well, you just you just kind of somehow you do. Well, and that's like what is grief but a haunting? Yeah. Death is but a door. Time is but a window. What is grief but a haunting? <laughs> That's exactly right.
It is. Yeah. Because every once in a while you're just or or often you're just suddenly hit with a pang. And often you're like, where did that come from? Right. Why now? Or like, why am I being shown this thing? Mm -hmm. And the real fear is that we won't be haunted. Yeah. We'll be left. Right. Or even just that, like, you know, regardless of what you believe about ghosts or spirits, like that will lose the memory of someone along with the person. Yeah. Because you can't be haunted if you don't remember. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think haunting is like forced remembrance. And that's why we use it in so many of the contexts that we do. There's also a really great Agatha Christie novel called Sleeping Murder, Mm. which is about a woman like she and her husband have just gotten married. They've bought this house. She was really taken with it the second they saw it. And she keeps she's like that wallpaper. We should have this wallpaper in the bathroom instead. And then peels back the current wallpaper and the wallpaper, she said, is like under it. And it emerges that she actually lived in this house like as a toddler. Oh, my God. But right. But that's yeah, that's the kind of haunting that we get. Like the past forcibly reintrudes and forces us to deal with it. Yes. And there is something about that premise that's like absolutely perfect. Right. Well, it's like him coming up with the song, but the song was already there. Yeah. Or like Helen and Candyman punching out the back of her medicine cabinet. Oh, yeah. What? Okay. If you were to have a ghost, like what what kind of interaction would you like to have with them? I think this is not I truly don't mean this to be a like wise assy or, or flip answer. But speaking to the stuff that you're talking about, about what writing is earlier. I feel like we do. We have go like mm-hmm. we open this by talking about the walkway travesty and tragedy. It's like anytime I become the kid who went in to go learn about the dead on the Titanic with microfiche, like I feel like I am constantly in conversation with ghosts. Yeah. By way of just interesting parts of history that I think that no one that have been forgotten because they're not like famous people are involved or like mm-hmm. I, I feel like. So many parts of every waking day of mine are is being in conversation with ghosts. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like if once in a while I could have a chat when there's not enough data, you know, or there wasn't Mm -hmm. enough reporting and I could ask some clarifying questions, maybe that would be nice. And I think that that's kind of what. You know, I, I think in a way like the seance is just about facilitating like an empathic place for you to be mm-hmm. able to to put your brain in a place where you're allowing it to ask questions of something that might not be there. But maybe your brain can fill in the blanks on that mm-hmm. when people are doing it in earnest and it's not kind of like a huckster thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm in touch with them daily, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that for whatever reason that became my interest. What about you, Sarah Marshall? I want to find a mysterious locket. <laughs> what do you think the locket would bring you to you know just like a mystery there would be like a picture and you'd have to find out who that but i mean but right that is the work of being a historian it's like you have to look into the past and offer like not just an attempt to understand the facts of what happened but like you have to offer your care you're offering your emotional energy and your love to dead people and like they require it Right, like his, the the facilitators of this whole interaction is the historical society. Yeah, the the people whose job it is to keep ghosts alive. I think that, like, I don't know, maybe we could allocate more government funds for historical preservation if we could sell it to voters as ghost housing. <laughs> well, I think you know, there's this whole there's the question about. What is the past and what is now? And Carol and I have been talking a lot about this because of the work that you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. There's a convenience to thinking that something happened in the past. Yeah. And that the past is somehow a, a different entity from what is happening right now. And the ghost or the haunting or sort of like the it's just an acknowledgement of the impact of what had happened before and that everything is a continuum. And by thinking that there is sort of like this disembodied past, it sometimes makes us free from thinking about repercussions right now. (laughs) And if you think about time as a continuum and think about ghosts and hauntings as just proof that yesterday happened and is still happening. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about things. It's a good way to be reminded that we're, we don't operate in a vacuum and everything is happening all at the same time. Yeah. And here's, here's a quote from Magnolia. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And the book says we may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. 
Oh, the best. The best. And no, it is not dangerous to confuse children with angels. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so good. Well, Sarah. Yes. We know that George C. Scott is a father. We also know that uh, Joey Carmichael's father is a father. Mm Mm-hmm. Who, in your view, is the daddy of Le Change Lung? <laughs> so our director is a guy named Pete Medak. Mm. I don't know why I called him Pete. His name is Peter Medak. He just seems like a Pete to me. He's Hungarian. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. But uh, he directed this movie. So he is the daddy for me. And what I was amazed to realize when I looked him up this morning is that he also directed a 1980 same year TV movie called The Babysitter, starring oh. Patty Duke Aston, William Shatner, and Stephanie Zimbalist, and Quinn Cummings. Wow. A real murderer's row of 70s celebs. And <laughs> it's a very cheesy movie that I saw when my parents got soap nut. When I was like 14, I remember watching it, and it's about Stephanie Zimbalist being a crazy killer babysitter who is like looking after a family and then there's a reveal where she like goes back to the house of the family she used to work for and the way I remember it she's killed them all and they're like inside plastic garment bags just around the house and it was so dumb and I just love that he directed both these movies that came out (laughs) the same year one of them being very kind of thoughtful and bleak and you know swinging into hammer horror at the end but really in a, a pretty arty emotional register and one that was a cbs movie of the week (laughs) mine is just because i like looking at him melvin douglas the actor Mm. who is in being there that's the only other thing i've seen this guy in outside of just he's in ghost story but i've never seen ghost story Mm -hmm. he's just like a perfect looking old man who probably did some bad things like he has a look about him i know he's acting but he's a, a million years old and i really like his performance in this movie because we get two of him although there's a couple of things we see in between that sort of just is expositional to plot we get the really nice affable philanthropist senator doing nice jokes and everyone likes him and then we get him essentially saying i will destroy you if this story gets out Mm -hmm. and i like that i appreciated that about him he feels like a real if you're on his good side it's great and if you're on his bad side you're dead and sometimes there's nothing more daddy than that Unfortunately. Yeah, that's very true. (laughs) Historically. Our definition of daddy changes uh, situation by situation, as you all know, and that's today's daddy. And people can just deal with that. (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Miranda Zickler, for producing and editing this episode. Thanks to Carolyn Kendrick for keeping this whole operation together. We appreciate you, Carolyn. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions where you get those bonus episodes. Thanks for following us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky <laughs> threads, I guess. <laughs> you can find me on TikTok. Thanks for finding us in all the places where you can find our episodes, et cetera, et cetera. Announcements and so on and so forth. And as I said before, it's scary out there. It is heartbreaking. It is uh, difficult. But in the face of that, I just want you to remember that you, my friend, are good. Thank you for joining us every week to talk about feelings and what these things mean to us. It means the world to Sarah, me, Miranda, Carolyn. We're glad that you're here. 